Welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Josh Witzpolsky. Today, we've got a very special guest uh, in the studio with us. Well, it's really just me. I mean, Magnus is here, but there's a new film out uh, called Amy. It's about the life of Amy Winehouse, and the director of the film is here with me, Asif Kapadia. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here. Before we talk about the film, which I, I watched, maybe later on I'll give um, listeners some pointers on when to watch the film and when not to watch it. I watched it, actually, I had to watch it in three pieces in different environments. Uh, and we're going to talk about it. But I, I first, I'm curious because you've directed, uh, you've directed documentaries and you've directed um, uh, just straightforward motion pictures, just, you know, fiction films. Yeah. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, drama, the, fiction. Drama, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, I'm curious, are you leaning now, are you sort of moving away from doing dramatic films or, or into you focusing on documentaries or are you going to continue to go back and forth? No, no, no. I like to do a bit of everything. I like, I make short films. I do commercials. I work in TV. Right. It's all directing. I'm right. a director. I'm a director and a writer. And Did I not say that? Well, no, it's, it's I should have said a, that. You're a dir- you are a director and a writer. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, it all depends on the project and it all depends on what comes along and what mood I'm in and the mood changes, you know, sometimes yeah. it's nice to switch and do something totally different. Right. No, that's interesting. I mean, I think that I, I, I think we tend to think of our directors as very specific, you know, most directors do documentaries as well. Is that true? Scorsese does documentaries. Okay. That's true. Okay. Spike Scorsese does them. Is, you know, okay. That's also true. They, but, they I feel like, but I feel like typically directors tend to get very, not pigeonhole, but they get, you know, they're in a category. You think of them in that category. They don't do a lot of other stuff. Like Zack Snyder's, yeah. if he'd they, made a documentary now, it would be very strange. It, drama is like a huge machine. It's like this massive circus you're lugging around. And, you know, it can be 500, maybe 1,000 people on the crew. And they cost millions and millions of dollars. Or they don't have to, but they can do. And, they, you know, you have a long development process. And you have to work on a script. And you have to raise the money. And then you're waiting for cast. And, and what I've enjoyed doing about these documentaries with Senna and with Amy is that essentially the crew is really small. There's like 10 of us, 12 right. of us core team and um with amy there was no script literally someone said would you be interested in making this film and there was a gut instinct which is like this would be interesting and then we just went off and made the film and it was like no paperwork no development meetings none of that none of the bs that can come with fiction sometimes right so that's interesting actually uh thinking about it now you you say it was about 12 people working on this this film and when you started, there's a lot of archival footage. You've got a lot of, obviously, personal photos, personal video. But then there's there's pieces that are, you know, you've got stuff from the Grammys and other... I mean, at some point, I'm guessing in the process of making this, you just go and get that footage. Later on, you worry about the licensing of it. Yeah. So is one of the core members of our team is our archive producer, Paul Bell. So his job is to go and search and clear the rights to all of this material. And we have a team of researchers. And then I have an editor and I have an assistant editor and a sound team and you know, a producer and, you know, a lawyer. And there's all these people people out there but eventually it's 10 12 people on this one yeah there's a yeah lawyer that was there more often than on previous films right um but yeah that that that's part of it yeah the archive there's three things going on at the same time i was interviewing people 
and kind of doing my research and meeting people a bit like now with me in a quiet place, microphone on a table and just talk whatever they wanted to talk about. I think you can hear that in the film, actually, that it feels very intimate, some of those conversations. It's the first time, really, that most of the contributors had ever spoken about their relationship to Amy with an outsider, with someone who wasn't on the inside. Um, I have an editor who's working away and then there's a research team searching for material, interviews, archive, photographs, everything and anything. So all three are going on at the same time. Um, And then each one kind of informs the other one. So if someone finds something great, then I can go and find out who that person is in the footage and interview them. And once once I've interviewed them, they may mention another person and we'll suddenly do a bit of research on that person. And and the editor will be then taking whatever comes in and re-cutting and re-cutting and re-cutting the story. Right. So it's interesting that you started this with no script. Now, having never made a documentary or or a drama... I, you know, I don't know how much you need to front load a story, but this, I mean, watching Amy, it felt like there's certainly a narrative. The narrative is extremely strong. And I think that actually I was surprised by um, how quickly you, where you enter the narrative, because there's a, you think when you start watching and with this kind of picture, I don't know that much about Amy Winehouse. I mean, I know that she was, you know, I know her work. I know her music. I obviously know about her death. But you don't, uh, you know, I don't know her backstory. I don't know where Amy came from. And you don't really cover it that much in that you cover it a bit, but you sort of enter right at the moment where she's going from clearly she's, she's you know, she's a teenager. She's, she's starting to get into the music industry and sort of moves very quickly into that. Did, was it not, was, did you think it, would, it took away from the narrative to go back to her childhood and to, you know, sort of how, she, you know, she talks about it a bit. You know, there's a lot yeah. of actually a lot of um, audio of her speaking, a lot of video of her speaking. How, you didn't want to go back to a certain point, though? Well, you know, the thing about these sorts of films, it's always tricky. It's where you come in. You know, often you know the middle, you know the ending, but you don't know the beginning. Both with Senna and with Amy, it was the beginning that took the longest to kind of crack and figure out. Um, you know, one of the adages, a great writer once said of, you know, you've got to come in as late as possible and get out as soon as possible uh, of every scene or every story. So you've got to figure out where do you come in where you can just kind of see the potential. You can see she's young. So we start the film, the opening scene is she's 14 yeah. with her friends. But then we leap to, you know, she's just about to break it. She's just about to make her first record. She's about to get a deal. And that seemed like an interesting moment to kind of capture her because she looks like the Amy Winehouse that becomes famous, but she's not famous yet. Yeah, There's the potential. She can sing. And it's also waiting up, you know, there's footage. You're making a movie at the end. So right. you've got to kind of lean and skew towards where do you have material where you can show something. Right. It's interesting there because... I don't I, know how interesting it is to start too young. Who cares? Well, no, I think... And that's... At first, but I you was can like... go into the childhood a bit later, but you don't necessarily start with it. Well, I had a question. I, I, my, my, the question that popped into my mind was, well, how did she, how did she end up with these people, my, I, I, there is a kind of a hole there, but I think it's the it, it needs to be there because it's not the focus of the film. The focus of the film isn't how did Amy get famous. It's what happened. It's what happened really when she was famous. I, think, you know? I guess what hopefully what what you get from it um, is the fact that you can hear the raw talent. Anyone who heard that voice thought she had something. Yeah. Um, and then she started to write and she could write as well. So, you know, before that, she's a teenager and she's going to school and not finishing most of them, you know, <laughs> getting kicked out. She was quite a kind of, a, you know, edgy kid. She kind of went off and did her thing. She was quite a bit older than her actual years. Yeah. Um, so she had experienced a bit of life, but, you know, really... It, we come in hopefully just at a point where things start to happen yeah. and it's all exciting. Yeah. You know, you're just about to make it, you're performing, you're driving around, getting changed in restrooms. And right. kind of well, putting... it is, and it does capture, it captures that. I mean, if you, I, I was actually, um, I was in the music industry uh, before I became a journalist and uh, it actually reminded me of, I, I started out making music, playing 
DJing at raves. And there was some, there's some early bits of it where it's, it is kind of like that thing where you're yeah. traveling around, it's late at night, it's early in the morning, you're sort of like, everybody's a little bit sketchy and you're yeah. just trying to get a, a word in edgewise. I thought that, you know, it sort of reminded me of that. Um, let's back up a little bit though. So you said somebody came to you and said, do you want to make this film? And how, how did you decide the previous documentary you made with Senna and get, Give me a little bit, explain a little bit of what Senna is about <laughs> so for people Senna, who haven't seen it. Senna was my first feature doc, and it's about a sportsman, a Brazilian racing driver, Formula One driver, and kind of p- people who maybe have never heard of him or never seen the sport would think, oh, how boring, who cares? It's not really about that. It's about him and his life and how he lives his life and this kind of journey that he went on. He's an amazing, charismatic guy. Um, he's quite an inspirational character. He's very positive. Um, and the story just kind of crossed over. It, it, it became the biggest kind of British doc ever. It was a big hit kind of all over the world. It did really well here. Over here, most people have never heard of him, yeah. but um, it went down really well. It won loads of audience prizes at Sundance and LA Festival and, you know, in Australia and kind of all over the world. It really kind of crossed. It went to Russia and did well. And um, So there's something about this guy. That my, my aim, I suppose, was to make a film, a doc that isn't a typical doc. It's a movie. For me, these are all movies. To make it feel as cinematic as possible. It's an action film. Hmm. You're watching this and you get caught up with the action the right. music the sound design all of that is, I use people that do big feature films um, you just get caught up with his life and his journey and the people that become his rivals are kind of amazing these are real people but when you meet these characters you just think you could not have made it, made it up right they're, and like, they're like wrestling you know, sort of bit larger almost, than life almost yeah. like the guy who ran the sport Jean-Marie Balest is unbelievable and then his big rival was this French guy called Alain Prost who was like you know four times world champion and Senna was a three times world champion so these guys are the best of the best and because of the nature of the sport, because of the amount of money and sponsorship involved in Formula One, there are cameras everywhere. Right. So we were the first people to get access to all this material and be able to cut a film together entirely out of this archive. So you're in there and you're basically you're hearing the story from his point of view. You're traveling with him. You're in the car with him. You're, you really, everyone kind of falls for this guy. It became right. quite an intense experience. Right. Um, now, if you haven't seen it, I won't tell you where it goes. But, you know, you go kind of all the way with this guy. And, and the less you know, the better, I would say. And, but so what's interesting is that unlike a, a film that you might do that's a drama, I mean, and you're talking about, you're, you're sort of thinking of these as a drama, thinking of these, these big kind of um, staged things, which they're not. I mean, you stage a film, you've got, you've set, you know, you yeah. set direction and all yeah. these costumes. This is a case where you're working with somebody else's footage yeah. often. I mean, I'm guessing that you're like, if it just, the camera could just pan a little well, bit you, over you to the that, left But because here. of the nature of that sport, there were times when he became so famous around the world, there might be 20 cameras on him. So what happens is there'll be a camera from Sweden. There'll be a camera from France. There'll be a camera from America. There'll be a camera from, from the UK. And all of these people are filming him at the same time. So the way the film is made is that we would go and find out who's holding the camera. Mm. And we'd get every tape from each camera person. So we could intercut the scenes like a drama. That's, so mean, we'd have two people talking to each other. We'd have a shot on you, effort. a shot on me, a two shot, a wide shot, a helicopter shot. <laughs> so in the end, the budget, there's no way I would have had the budget to make a film like that right. because it's covered so well. We have, in Brazil, there's like half a million people watching the race and we've got a crowd of half a million people cheering him on, right. shot by helicopters. How do, you, how do you find those people? I mean, it must be... You spend s- five years doing the film, you know. Right. I mean, there's got to be a huge run-up to actually collecting the yeah, footage. So there's a long period of time on that particular film. The, the way the film was made was, it's really interesting because sometimes, you know, every film has problems. Every, every, anything of art, anytime you make something, you have issues. You never have enough time, money, whatever it is. So on, on Senna, it was a really complicated deal to get everyone on board. It took months. I had already started on a film. 
I was turning down other work. I wasn't getting paid yet because the deal hadn't been signed. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of jumped in now. I'm going to make this film. I've got an edit suite. I'm working with an assistant editor. We're starting to look at the material. And I'm waiting for the deal to happen so I can hire an editor. It took nine months for oh. that deal to happen. So for nine months, I'm not being paid. But for nine months, I'm looking at the material. So what happens is the problem of not being able to get going on the film became the way we solved the problem. Because actually, I spent nine months looking at the material and I just thought, this material is amazing. It's all here. Right. It's the best set of dailies I've ever seen in my life. Huh. We could make the entire film just with all of this stuff that I've seen on YouTube and that we, we, we're kind of stealing and ripping from different places. Right. And that's what we did. We just started ripping it. So and you started it with like, like essentially third hand or second really hand bad footage. quality yeah. stuff off YouTube, yeah. editing it together and started screening it and showing it to people. And bit by bit, everyone fell in love. But then everyone would say, yeah, but it's a doc. You have to film someone. And I'd say, oh, I don't think we do. And it took a long time. But the more we screened the film, the more people got really caught people up with the People wanted to get you like somebody against a black backdrop talking you know, a, about... A bookshelf over yeah, there and yeah, a plant yeah. over there and, you know, the usual kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. And, yeah. and people do that really well. But because my background was in drama, I'm not... I'm, that's not my style. Most yeah. of my dramas don't have a lot of dialogue in them. So it just became this thing of we kept showing the film and screening it and people would just be really moved and crying and laughing. And, and it just became that was the only way to make the film. And, yeah. and the more you show it, the more people loved it, the more they realized maybe there's something unique here. Yeah. So that's always kind of exciting for me. If you make a film, you want to challenge yourself and you want to try to create a new style. And that's kind of what the film did. And, and did you have a script for Senna or did that also? Did you yeah, also... so on Senna, there was an expert. There's a guy on the team. There's a producer, James Gay Reese, myself, director. And there was a guy called Manish Pandey who was the writer and the exec producer who was the mad Senna fan. He'd seen every race. He'd read every book. He'd, he'd been there. You know, he had the photographic memory. I know nothing. So I'm quite happy to be the dumb guy who knows nothing. But I work with someone who knows something. And then, but my job is the director to try to find the best shots, the best angles, and right. to work with the editors to try and tell the story, to make it work for people who know nothing. Right. Simplify it. Take out all the engines. Take out all the technology. Did you know, were you, were you a racing fan? I mean, did you know Senna? I'm a Senna? sport nut. Okay. Yeah, I know a lot about You're sport. I'm interested into that. And so I was watching it. I remember it. But I'm not a Senna crazy guy at the beginning. You know, right. I, I wasn't a Formula One nut. So I, was, I knew enough to know I liked the psychology of sports people. And I'd been trying to make a film about sport. But fiction films, you never believe the stories. Right. You know, if you try to write, I don't know, Michael Jordan's story down and yeah. the kind of things that People he did like, in a drama. It's like, come on, that's stupid. But he did it. <laughs> you know, that's what's great about right. sport. Right. And that's kind of what Senna was. Senna would be last in a race. And he had to win it. And then suddenly it would start raining and he'd come through and he'd win. And he'd do it again and again and again. And he would just like, you get caught up in his story. It's interesting. Amazing. You know, something that struck me, and I'm gonna, I'm, I do want to talk about how, how you came to the Amy story. But, but hearing you talk about Senna and, and sport in this way, or sports as we call it here in America. Yeah, why, why? I don't sport know. It seems like word. that extra S is what important. What is the problem with that? Sports. It's sport. Sport is like, what is you know, we don't need, well, sport is just, what is that? I don't, that doesn't make any sense. It's a word me. that encompasses all sports. That's like he plays a sport. It's about one thing. Doesn't make any sense to, to Americans. Evidently. Everywhere else, though, of course. But here's what I'm thinking. Obviously, we're all wrong. You know, I think that sounds, that sounds right to me. I don't want to point fingers. But no, here's what's interesting. You were just talking about sports and this, the larger-than-life character. And, um, and I was going to get to this later on, but I, I feel like we're... One of the things when I was watching Amy that I thought a lot about is Elvis. And I, th- and I was actually just talking about Elvis Presley because I think he's sort of this mythical, he's an American myth in many ways. I think he's this mythological character that has this like incredible rise and this incredible fall. And it's just sort of, it, it's dramatic and epic and, and sad and beautiful. 
And I thought the same thing about Amy when I was watching that. It's it's much smaller. I mean, on much smaller scale in many ways, but there's a certain mythology to it. And there's a certain building of a, of a mythological character as you see her go from this 14-year-old girl to this huge Almost a almost a caricature of who she was, you know. Not not that anything was fake about her, you know. But how much are you interested in mythology in these stories, and how much is this about trying to tell those real the real mythologies? It's really interesting because um, Senna became this mythical character. That was him. He was like a god. I mean, he he was for me like when you're making a film about him, you're dealing with someone from almost from another planet, because you know the way these guys drive. They're driving at 200 miles an hour. They're thinking in a way that none of us could think. They are the fittest people in the world. There's only like 20 guys that can drive a Formula One car at any given point. So he's the best of the best of the best, right? Superhuman. What I found interesting about Amy was for me, she was like a girl next door or, as, you know, the roundaway girl kind of thing. Here. <laughs> she literally grew up in an area just like she lived half a mile away from my door. She, she talked like we all talk. She was a typical Londoner, went to normal schools. So what I was interested in was actually breaking up that mythical image, that that beehive the makeup that kind of megastar millionaire you deserve everything that happens to you because you're rich yeah and take all that away strip it away and underneath it is just this very ordinary girl with lots of insecurities worries about her weight worried about her spots worried about her hair worried about all that kind of stuff that ordinary people do someone that i could have known gone to school with met at a bus stop yeah. so the reason i engaged with this one was almost the opposite to senna and elvis or michael jackson i don't know who these people are right well, I they think exist elvis, in another universe but i think elvis his, his roots i think there is something true michael jackson as well and i think there's a yeah, similar you know, for me my first right. he still came from another right. country I mean, you're, he came right. you're from not somewhere down the street. Yeah. and he was on movies and he did all these songs and you know that's how i remember him whereas right. this girl was really like literally from down the road from your neighborhood and who who could sing and I know a lot of girls when I was growing up that could sing yeah. but she could write and she had this voice that was like she was a jazz singer which nobody was into at that point at that age yeah. and then she can somehow she hit something she hit a mark which translated to this mega sales and became a f- famous all over the world you know I could still go to lots of places in the world and people know Senna he's pretty big around the world but a lot of people had not heard of him like, I've not been anywhere where people haven't heard of Amy Right. right, So she's on that level so quickly from two records and one of them didn't even get a release here right. at the time. So in a short space of time, she went from ordinary girl to megastar. Right. Um, but she wasn't cut out for and, it. And, and it's a total juxtaposition to like a Britney Spears or somebody who is a, such a manufactured product. I mean, I mean, not that they're not talented in, their, in, in a different way, but th- there's something that's so, it's, it, well, the authenticity is so so there that it's too much authenticity i mean in a way it's it's like what really broke her is is her, the how real she was so and i i never thought about this before until i started kind of working on this movie and hearing people talking about amy is that she you know you hear about method actors you hear about people who have to go into character daniel day lewis or someone like that and have to be that person 24 hours a day to kind of well amy was like that when she sang She had to go back into the emotion that she felt when she wrote the song and feel that emotion. If it's a song about a breakup and it's a deep relationship and it's kind of real heavy stuff she's dealing with and darkness and depression, she would then feel that emotion to sing it because then she would sing it depending on the mood she's in now, which is kind of what jazz musicians do. You play the way you feel. No two nights are the same. And that's what she was. She was was this very kind of interesting jazz singer that had to feel it. The problem is she became a pop star. Right. You're a pop star, just sing the bloody record. Yeah. Even if you don't sing, just dance or mime. We don't care, but people want to hear the record <laughs> right. because that's what they've paid for. Right. And that became the problem. Yeah. And if she well, suddenly did go into that triangle shape that she talks about in the story. Well, I mean, I feel like there's, there's, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of problems. That is one of them. I feel like she's also, I mean, the, the film, the film touches on a lot of things. I mean, I, I, I think the big, 
the centerpiece, and when you think about these, the sort of stresses on this person who's become this thing, is this world of celebrity that she lives in. I mean, it's very clear. You see this 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 um, path from being that sort of normal girl to this world of celebrity. And, you know, it's a very common, I think now, very common people say, oh, they weren't ready for it. Or you can't prepare anybody for it. And in fact, you have somebody in the film saying, there's no textbook on this. There's no guidebook. And I think everybody gets that. Nobody really knows what it's like to be a celebrity until you are a celebrity. But you actually, seeing the story from inside her perspective a bit, you do get this impression of this overwhelming change in her reality. But what didn't change but was also deeply affecting and impactful were her relationships. I mean, it seemed like particularly the relationship with her husband, uh, Blake, and uh, her father were very destructive, in some ways, destructive relationships. And and those were not relationships that were new, essentially new to because of her fame, although you do give the impression that Blake maybe comes back a bit. But maybe people change. Yeah. Not just her. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Everyone gets affected by it. your whole circle. Suddenly there's a new dynamic, isn't there? So there 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 seems to be I don't know if it's a it was a conscious decision or if it's just something that came up in the process of telling the story, but her father seems to be kind of one of the causes of of problems that she was having. And there are many situations in the film where it seems like, well, Amy's in trouble, she's trying to get clean, she needs a rest, she needs to go to rehab, she needs to do whatever, and her there's her dad sort of telling her to do the opposite or making her do the opposite. I mean, how, what, is your, what is your take on that relationship and how, how much do you, how detrimental do you think it was to her, to her, um, to her existence and to her problems? Right, so obvious reasons is all quite sensitive issues, you yeah. know, because you're dealing with real people. This is the big difference between fiction films and drama and documentaries when people are still alive. Um, because, because, you know, there's, there are people out there who are aware that this film's been made and they're uncomfortable with certain things. I mean, I guess my answer is that I, once I got into it, once I spoke to a lot of people doing the research for this film, over 100 people, I couldn't put everyone in the film. Um, at the beginning, no one wanted to speak because everyone thought it was too sensitive and they thought, I don't know, they didn't know who I was. I could have been another journalist that's going to try and take advantage of Amy and stuff. One by one, they did speak and they opened up. And then, and then people would talk and tell me what was going on. And it felt like I kind of, I owed it to Amy really to try to be kind of as honest as I possibly could do with the finished film. Um, and that meant dealing with all of the people around her. Lots of people around her seemed to make decisions, including Amy. It's really important. She made decisions which, in the end, were not great for her. She changed management. She's the one. I don't know if you pick who you fall in love with, but she fell in love with this guy. Right. He went away, went back to his ex. That's where the album Back to Black comes from, yeah. from that kind of depression she hits after he leaves her. And then he came back on the scene. Everyone warned her about him, but she took him back. Yeah. There was something about him that she connected to. I mean, she was upset. They were kind of obsessed with each other. And, it and was, you know, I don't know, that kind of Sid and Nancy thing. There was just something about yeah. the two of them. They both came from a certain background. They both had certain issues. She had self-esteem issues. He had issues from his childhood, which in a way they looked at each other and it's like, I know you, you yeah. know me. We have a perfect connection here. We're, let's, let's get together. Yeah. You know, there is yeah. something going on. Now, in terms of family and other people... I think everyone started making decisions which, which just, just turned out to be bad for her in a way. They were not consciously doing it maybe, or maybe they were, but it just like they all kind of added up and added up and added up. Her team around her were kind of putting her on shows that you just think, why is she doing that show at that point? Right. It doesn't make sense. Right. You know, looking at it, even at the time, I think where people were looking at it and going, it doesn't make sense, but then kept selling tickets. People right. kept wanting to see her. No matter yeah. what state she was in, people yeah. want to go and see her. Even if it's just to see that woman who's obviously got a problem with a glass of wine singing rehab, 
that's all they wanted to see in there, egging yeah. her on. And I feel like I feel like you know one of the things that uh, I felt when she died, and I remember thinking it very vividly was, of course, I mean she was. This was a person who you could tell was on a path that was ter- just a terrible path, was very sick, needed help. You know, and I think it's the same thing. You look at like somebody like Michael, we were talking about Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was one of those things where, and it's and it becomes something that's so publicly, I mean, you, you touch on it in the film, you've got comedians doing jokes about it and the media talking about it, but it does, you become so desensitized to the what is actually happening to a human being, you know, and having dealt with, you know, some, seeing having seen alcoholism up close right and when you see how sick somebody can really be and how damaging it can really be this is like it's so clear watching the film how you think somebody there so there's supposed to be somebody who says all right seriously we have to do something shut it down we've got to fix this you've got to go get help whatever it is and there are there are intervals there but you know where that happens but it does seem like it was this kind of thing that no one could uh, what desensitized or not, no one could actually control what she was doing. I mean, you couldn't, and people say it, they say, well, you couldn't force her to go, you know, you couldn't you know, throw her in a car and kidnap her or whatever. But I mean, how much do you think that, 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 uh, desensitizing played into, it played into the people around her? I mean, did, were they reacting at all to everybody was just kind of like, oh, you're this tragic character, you know? I think, yeah, that's, that's really an interesting question. It's hard to kind of give an answer from the outside here, but you know, when, when I spoke to people around her, all the people, what happened was kind of everyone was in different compartments. There were very few people that were around the whole time. So what would happen is there'd be a group of friends maybe she grew up with and there'd be her first manager, Nick, and then something would happen and there'd be her grandmother who was a key part of her life, actually. Yeah. And then that's all. they were all around for the first album, Frank. And then the manager says, I can't see you kind of le- let you do this to yourself, right? I can't be here. If you, unless, if you want help, I'm here to help you. But if you're going to carry on, I can't be here. And her friends were kind of the same. So she moves on. And there are other people that suddenly fill in that gap. There's another manager that comes through. And there's other people that come along. And those people maybe only knew her from that point onwards. So they think that's normal. Yeah. Now, for the people who knew her before, she's actually got a lot worse. Right. And I think what happened was this kind of step of her getting slightly worse, but a new group of people coming around so kept sort of, happening again like, and oh, again. This is, yeah, this and is it, normal. And none of these groups were talking to one another. None of them knew that Amy previously. Yeah. So you just think this is who you are. Yeah. Okay, you're fine. Then she gets worse. And then another group would come along. So that's kind of the interesting kind of dynamic of these different compartments around her life that I found and somehow they didn't all come together the, the kind of doctors the experts that I spoke to said you know if you're going to do an intervention you have to bring all of these people mm-hmm. you have to put your own grievances aside stop arguing amongst yourselves come together to help right. and for whatever reason sadly that never happened I do want to get back to the the production the, the the way you made this film because you you didn't shoot anything for this is that right um, the only bits that are in the film which were shot by us are there's a few drone shots and helicopter shots. Oh, of okay, right. There's there's yeah. one in in New York and there's a. So that one I didn't shoot. Okay. Yeah, that's a beautiful shot in Union Square. But um, where did I that come, to, where did that come when, from? That would have been some archives that someone else had shot. That's oh, really? There's some beautiful shots of New York <laughs> that's and, crazy. and uh, kind of you have this moment. Oh, we got to go to New York. Let's find a great shot. And yeah. you know, so again, Paul Bell would have found something like that. And then there were a few shots in London where someone literally one day came into the edit suite. Someone else was working next door and they're like, they had a drone. It's like, right. listen to this, it's amazing. We're like, Why don't we use that? You know, it was literally, <laughs> can, <laughs> you go, can you go to these addresses and just shoot something? Yeah. And then they went off and they shot it and yeah. they said, like, oh, that's no good. All of that ended up in a film. You know, <laughs> um, there's a few aerial shots of, of London. I, when this film started, I was doing a film for the London Olympics and I shot the whole film from a helicopter. 
And so there's a few shots that I've sort of nicked from that film. Right. But you didn't really shoot any. I mean, you didn't shoot any of the people who are speaking. It's all audio. Everything you, everything in the film in terms of people and images are, is it's kind of 99% is all archive. Right. And you, do, and you do quite a bit. This is something I was struck by watching it. And I don't know how much... Um, if you were aware of this beforehand, were you a fan of her music? I mean, was some, some of you I, listened I had, to? I had her CDs. Um, I never saw her live, never met her. So I, I, I would not have called myself a fan right. at the beginning. Right. I, I have friends who are really into their music, who really know what they're talking about, who saw her before she was famous at a festival, and they just heard this voice across a field, and they went over to see her, and they were blown away. And I, and, and I trust their opinion. Yeah. And, and, and these two friends really pushed me to do the film. My wife really pushed me to do the film. They were like, she's amazing. You have to do this. You have to do this. Drop all that other stuff. I was um and ahhing for a bit. And then I started doing research, and I was like, actually, there's a story here that I want to get into. And a big part of it for me was because it was a film about my home city, and I haven't made any films at home in London for a long time. Right. And, and so, so what was it that brought it to you initially? I mean, was it just people mentioning it to you? or was there How the project sp- came about. Yeah. So it all kind of goes back to the previous film, Senna. There was a guy at Universal Music in London who'd loved Senna, who kind of had mutual friends with my producer, James Gay Reese. They must have met at a dinner party or something. And yeah. he said, look, what do you think? Would you be interested in making a film, you know, like Senna about Amy? See, and, and what this guy at Universal said to James, the producer, was warts and all. So James thought, okay, that makes sense. Let me right. call Asif. Right. After Senna, I got offered a lot of sports films. Yeah, every, a lot of people got in touch and please make a film about me. Please make a film about me. <laughs> right. And I didn't really want to do that again. So I was the waiting sports for sports players get in touch with you? They're like, did yes. you do this for me? The people did. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of big names. You'd be amazed. I, I mean, they're I'd all love, great. I'd love to hear about them. Feel free to share. <sighs> no. Michael yeah, Jordan. Kinda, Michael Jordan. Did he get I'd like to do this for okay. Michael Jordan. You would. Okay. So yeah. if you're listening, he no, probably yeah. is listening. I, he's, he's obviously a listening. big fan of this podcast. Yeah. You'd be amazed how many people like Senator, like the kind of most amazing. No, no, no. I know know the film. And actually, my producer, Magnus, who's Swedish, um, which is unrelated to his his love for the film, but he's been saying. I mean, even before even before you know we set this up, he was like, oh, "You got to see Senator. This film's so good." And and I have not. I admittedly have not seen it. I barely. I barely saw. Okay, this is a. <laughs> this I barely saw. The thing is, I saw a screener. Actually, let me tell you about this. I had got a screener for Amy. I started watching it last night, at, late at night. And got about 40 minutes into it, and I was dead tired. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick this up tomorrow. And then I realized that I didn't. And by the way, I'm just going to say, what I'm about to talk about is not safe, and I'm not I'm not advocating for this. Do not do this. Don't do what I did. But on my way into work, I drove in, and I watched the the most of the rest of it on an iPad on the seat next to me, which is highly inadvisable and very dangerous. And admittedly, I kept my eyes on the road most of the time, so I, I did miss a few bits, but the audio was playing through. Then I finished it at my desk which is a, the wrong place to watch the end of this film. Uh, so if you're thinking about viewing it, and for some reason you have a screener, you're not in a theater, Yeah. hopefully you haven't pirated Last it. Last time because, I sent you a screener. Yeah, sorry. I really abused my screener rights by moving through this. Anyhow, but it's, it, it's, it's not, don't finish it up in an office. That's my, that's my recommendation. But what was I saying? How did I get on this topic? David Joseph at Universal Music had liked Senna, contacted my producer. He then said, okay, I'm interested, contacted me. I had made lots of films about sports people, didn't want to do another sport film. So th- this was different enough because it was about a musician. So I knew Amy, I knew of her music, I had her CDs, but I wasn't a hardcore fan. But it was just something about her story and how it panned out that I guess there were loads of questions. And I think for me to make a movie about anything, there's got to be a lot of 
elements and layers and questions that you want to answer. That's what makes it a feature film. Um, and the fact that it was a film about someone local, that it was a film about the city for me as much. It was about North London. Yeah. Camden's a particular place at that particular moment in time. It was like where everything was happening. It was like the center of the world for a short period of time. All the musicians were going there. Everyone wanted to hang out there. The kind of darker characters who wanted to be something were there. There was loads of drugs on the street. It just had this energy and she wanted to live there for that reason. So in the 60s, it might have been Carnaby Street in London. Then it was Notting Hill and then it became Camden. And so there was just something about getting that kind of place and capturing it is what made me yeah. interested to do the film. Where is it now in London? Where Still in North it? London. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, just say, you just say that because, no, I mean, where's the cool place in London now? You're, oh, it all went to Shoreditch and Hoxton. Uh, you thought I was asking Hackney. if Camden still existed? Yeah, I was joking. Yeah, it's <laughs> Hackney right. and Ho- Shoreditch and Hoxton. Oh, yeah. oh Shoreditch. All of that kind of place. Is that Shoreditch is a place, right? Yeah. I think it's near actually, the city. It's I think kind of Bloomberg offices All the poor areas, you know, yeah. they get regenerated well, right. and suddenly have hipsters moving. That's right. That's what's happened with Brooklyn here. I mean, yeah. there's like Williamsburg. Exactly. Williamsburg was a bunch of factories and Greenpoint was, you know, yeah. Where the people who worked in the factories lived, and now now they're cool and very expensive. Um, so so, but you but sorry. So you said ninety nine percent of this is basically footage that archival footage, right? So you did something really interesting, and this is the, ah, this is a question I wanted to ask you. And I think at one point I was getting to it, but I went off as I want to do on a tangent. What I didn't realize about her music and what was extremely pronounced in the film, and and the, I think like I makes me want to revisit her music is she was not these were not abstract ideas that she was singing about. They were not, you know, most pop music, most music you hear, it could be applied to any anybody's situation. But when you go through the story, when you go through the, her story, her really, you know, the, the personal bits of it, her music mirrors it almost perfectly. Now, I don't know if that's a, a testament to your skill as a filmmaker or if it's it's reality. I'm, I, I'm thinking that it is reality. Bit of both. But it is kind of incredible. Did you discover that? I mean, you must have discovered that pretty quickly while yeah. you were doing so, this. So I started talking to people and doing these audio interviews. And and while I was doing that, people started telling me stories. And then, you know, every now and again, I'd be off going somewhere at night, driving in the car in London, and I'd put the CD on and I'd listen to the songs. And I'd just start hearing them again in a different way because it suddenly like key words would pop up. And it was almost like a jigsaw puzzle or rather it was like a map that I didn't really understand. Then, and then I stopped listening to the music and I just printed out all the lyrics and read the lyrics. And suddenly you read them as a piece of text, as a piece of writing, and you realise that is the story so-and-so is telling me about. And yeah. this person, I'd go, who's this person? And I'd ask someone, I'd go, oh, that's Ray Charles. And then, you know, they'd all, there'd yeah. be all these clues that she'd put in no, her it's writing. Like, it, is like, it is like a secret is, is revealed. Yeah it's, yeah, it's crazy. We just had it upside down or backwards or something. You know, the songs are there. We've all heard the songs hundreds and thousands of times. We've heard them all. We've danced to them. We didn't really pay that much attention. Right. And all I'm doing is just saying, if you put the words up on the screen, you stop going with the music and stop going with, you know, the beat and you listen to what she's saying and you realize she had written it all down a long time ago about her issues with men about her relationships about she wants someone stronger than her about her self-esteem everything every song is based on a real person a real incident and then when i talk to the people it's pretty much verbatim certain things rehab is what happened between her manager nick and no i mean it's it's identical to the story about her being Taken, so suddenly they're they trying to get up. her to rehab. Yeah. So it's like these, this for me. There's like it became clear. Yeah. This is going to be a particular kind of musical where you have a story and you have a narrative and you follow it and then you you learn something about her and then she picks up a guitar and sings. And you go, oh my god, that's yeah. what we just saw. I mean, literally, you think it's this romantic sort of uh, sort of you know when you hear the song, you think it's this kind of romantic poetry about rehab as a concept. 
get kind of ironic. It's kind of not. On it. It's not. It's extremely specific. It's it's very literal, and it happened. It's that which I thought, which I found. You know, I, I didn't doubt truth in her music, but you don't realize that it's, it's so close to that the. These actual... are the kind of really simple, obvious things that then become big revelations. Yeah. Like her text is in there, out there on the internet all the time, yeah. but nobody really connected the dots. Yeah, and I think that's what happened during the process of the film. Sometimes it's just about doing really simple things. Like just put the text up there and read it and then listen to the song and suddenly it means something else. You'll never hear it the same again. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, that's kind of the job of the director. And you use the lyrics in the film. I mean, that's actually a motif that keeps reappearing is that as you go through the story, you're, you're putting the lyrics up on the screen. Her writing for me is like one of the best things about her. You know, everyone talks about the voice, the voice, which is amazing. Okay. Yeah. But the right, I think having a blank piece of paper and writing something that's original, that's personal, that can translate all over the world and stand the test of time, that's the really, yeah. really difficult thing. There's no song unless someone writes it to start right. with and right. comes up with the music and all of that's her. I didn't know she played the guitar so well. No, this is, this is something to me that was also quite surprising. I assumed that she was like working with producers who'd be writing the music with her and it was sort of a typical pop situation where you've got like a team of engineers producers writers and you've got the you know the singer in there and they're all sort of working together she's was had like a dan own was just playing this stuff on her own a dan electric guitar and was just playing this writing these tunes writing them down on a piece of paper and then taking them into the studio and going and doing them i'm not saying that the producers and other she writers were involved but, you but, know yeah. she worked with you know salam remy and mark ronson and commissioner gordon had great producers but yeah. all of them and i spoke to all of them said but she came in with this amazing raw talent. Yeah. She had it. So, you know, that whole thing about, you know, a lot of, and I was, talking, I was on radio this morning as well, right? When they were just saying, you know, it's that classic, you've got a white girl singing black music or jazz and can she really do it? But all of these people were like, she's the real deal. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spoken to like, you've got Tony Bennett at one end, okay? Don't yeah. listen to me, listen to Tony Bennett. <laughs> right. You've got, I know Prince loved her stuff and she performed with Prince. She performed with the Rolling Stones. Quest loved thought she was great. Yeah. Most Steph thought she was great. Yeah. You've got these producers that produced for the Fugees and Lauren Hill and Nas and all these people. People, all of them said this girl was the real deal. Yeah. And she did it like when she was 18, yeah. 19. And you've 20, got and you've got interviews with a lot of those people. I mean, you've got yeah, conversations. Yeah, I met all of them. them. Um, so th- on the interview piece, you talk to her father, you talk to Blake, you talk to all these people, right? Is there a director's cut of this somewhere where there's there's way more conversation that, that you oh, didn't? Yeah. I mean, look, on a, uh, yeah, because, you know, I spoke to certain people for like 12 hours, 15 hours. Yeah. And you might have, you know, 15 lines in the film that's one of the problems with this kind of process is you do all this work and research and in the film you just spend all the time saying we've got to get rid of it we've got to cut it out we've got to cut it out and that becomes frustrating not just for me and the editor but for the people I spoke to who right. feel like they opened their heart to me and they're not in the movie like, how come you didn't put this in it's Why really you tough in? you know right. you spend a lot of time talking to them and asking them to be a part of the movie and then they do it and they open their heart to you and then they're not in a movie and right. then they're upset that they've been cut out of her life. And it's, you can't win. It's a really difficult thing. A lot of people are upset that they're not in the film. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of this really difficult choice you have to make where you, all you can do in a movie, it's like you know, you're adapting a huge Russian novel. You've got to just capture the essence of it as best you can. Right. It, it, it's a film, but it's just dealing with certain people. There's certain rules that are applied when you're making a film. You can't have everyone in there. You can't. The real version of the film, I guess, is like, you know, eight feet tall and is the transcript of every single interview that I did. <laughs> right, right. You know, because that tells you everything it's a mini, that was going it's a, on. It's a show. It's a show on HBO. It's a season of a show or something. It's, it's you know, I'm not saying we're doing that. No, but no, that, no. That's I the mean, truest version. It could be. Because then you get everyone's different perspective. Right. Because they're not all saying the same thing. Right. Sometimes they're saying the opposite thing and it's really up to you to decide what do you want Does to it, feel and believe. By the way, you know what's interesting about it? I, I wasn't like, God, I need to see a documentary about Amy Winehouse. I wasn't sitting around thinking, I wish somebody would just do a documentary about Amy Winehouse. And in fact, 
I, I don't know that I was, when I first saw the first trailer, I was like, yeah, that seems interesting. I don't know that I really want to see it. And having watched it now, there's a tremendous value there in, in actually seeing that story because it reflects so much, so much uh, about what's happening, what happens in reality and in celebrity. Um, that and is art. That, that, I, for me, it's yeah. also a film about art and where yeah. does art come from it? You know? Right creativity and, and what do we do with it once once it becomes and what's more important the art or the person right what's going to last longer you know or the or the, uh, or the or the the revenue that the artist creates all of that right all the business comes after of course right. i actually thought it was really interesting there's what a would scene... you talk about if you didn't have things like this to talk about no there would nothing we would just sit here in silence but that might be interesting too there's actually a bit uh, which i thought was impressive for the label there's a there's a part later in the film where the label actually says listen you've got a you've got a, this is you know talking about art and money and the person versus the product. But they actually, the label actually says, listen, and I guess they're trying to protect their product as much as the, as the person, but the label actually says, if you don't get clean, you can't perform, you can't go do this, you can't go make more records, which I think is unusual. I don't know how often that happens. It seems like things get really out of hand for the most part, and you don't hear about labels stepping in and trying to get the person to clean up. I don't know if they do that normally, but I think the situation got so messy that that came up. Um, I tell you, I mean, I'm not in the music business, so I learned a lot because I, you know, I don't really know when an artist is performing where, I don't understand how it works, who gets the money, but what I seems like what I appear to have learned is that, you know, the label make money from CD sales, record sales. People buy tracks, download them. They don't necessarily make money from performances, live performance. Yeah. You know, and that's essentially what Amy, Amy made that record in 2006. It came out in 2007 here. And for five years, six years, she was performing back to black. And that was, and that was the time. And uh, yeah, you're 100% correct about that. That was actually a time when music was in... There was a real valley where I, rem I remember because we had a studio in Brooklyn. We worked with a lot of bands and, and it was like touring is the only thing is the only way we get paid. Like we can put a record out, but nobody we're not going to sell enough of that record for to make any money. The label might make some money, but ultimately the gigs were the things that were important. And when you do go into that in the movie, Amy has it's all these obligations to play these gigs for a ton of money. But that is how a lot of artists, I think, I think if you look to this day, you will find that that's what the, where the money is for the artist is playing the live gigs because exactly. they can control much more of that. I mean, the label doesn't necessarily own those gigs. They can do sponsorships. They get a lot more money from, you know, from the actual ticket sales. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's still like that. Music, music is, you know, what's interesting is that we, I've talked a lot about this recently because Apple Music and, you know, people talk about the changing economy of music. And this is interesting because, you know, it's an art form that we've put a very clear value on, obviously valuable to people on, on an emotional level, clearly valuable for a long time to labels and to artists, but it has changed dramatically. And that's a place, it's sort of a sacred space for artists where it's like, you can't get a live performance anywhere else. It's going to be live. You have to be in the room and that they still have some control over that, you know, yeah. but yeah. You know, Amy did not, it's interesting, but in this film does not have as much control as she probably would have liked to have, it seems like. No, I think that's the thing, you know, um, a lot of the artists I spoke to for the film, Yassine Bey, formerly known as Mostef, was one of the people who talked about, you know, if you're a solo artist, you've got to be driving a bus. You've got to be in charge of your career. You decide when you perform. You decide if you're not up to it. I'm not doing it tonight. You've got to, you have to be able to take that on. And I, I, I don't get the feeling that she was in control, sadly. She wasn't able to make those decisions or right. she was confused. Sometimes she'd say yes and then she'd say no and, you know, nobody really knew. Right. Um, but what's interesting, what you talk about just kind of in terms of music, part of the thing about Amy's story that I found interesting anyway was that she's kind of that she was on that cusp from analog to digital. You know, the first demo that she ever did that she gave to Nick Shemansky was a TDK A90 
cassette tape, right. you know, which he then played. She yeah. did it. She put it down, pressed play and record and recorded her voice, gave him a cassette tape. He plugged it in a car, drove around, heard her voice, found her and kind of did signed you hear her that, up. Did you hear that tape? I have heard it. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's great. It's yeah. amazing. She's doing some kind of jazz standards. Um, by the ending, she's the digital girl. You know, she, she's the one who kind of becomes the person who... You know, not only digital in terms of music, but she's the one when Facebook and YouTube and all of this stuff, newspapers have gone digital. They need more and more gossip and stuff yeah. to talk about yeah. on their websites. They're the most Perez popular Hilton. ones. You know, something that yeah. you can just put on it. He made her famous in America. Yeah. Right. Page six, Perez Hilton was the thing that a lot of people I spoke to. That's how they first heard yeah, about yeah. her. Yeah, no, I remember. I Because mean, he'd have a circle around some part of her body and it'd be pointing, there'd be some crazily witty thing written about right. her and everyone's laughing. That was the way everyone in the US got in. Yeah. On her was by someone making fun of her. Yeah. No, and and and, and, and that, that song. You do totally humanize a person who is a, like a caricature to most people and was so much of a character and so much of a character that that you know you've got Jay Leno making just blatant just awful jokes about her drug use when in, in reality there he was like a person dying from drug use I mean literally dying from from drug use and alcohol abuse and it's just kind of striking like how I mean we're just very fucked up as people I mean we we delight in this stuff we don't think much about it and on the other end of it is an actual you know human being that is that is being you know in some ways tortured i mean are they are they responsible for it on their own did you like you said she made decisions i mean absolutely but there's no uh, there's no possibility that any of the, those jokes or any of that shit helped you no. know you know because look p- human beings look at them look themselves up you know they're aware of what's being said about them. People do it. People yeah. don't admit to it, but they do it. And yeah. then they see negative stuff, and they see more and more negative stuff. If anything, it's going to drive you to self-medicate more. Right. She was, and like she that. was very insecure. I mean, I think any any anybody who, who's an artist is, is has some insecurity. I mean, anybody who does anything where you're putting yourself out in the world in a view for other people to see is it, it makes you incredibly insecure. I mean, every time we finish one of these, I go, "Oh fuck, that was the worst." Ever is all I can think about is what it's going to sound like to somebody. Is that, else, is that what you're you know? thinking? Right now? I'm thinking this is the worst ever. No, but don't worry. That's how I feel every every time we do one. Um, no, I don't. I think this one's actually going pretty well. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Um, it's another. What is this? Our safe word, right? Let me just explain. I said before we started. I said if there's anything you don't want to talk about, let's just have a safe word. You could just say it. And I decided the safe word should be blueberry. And so Asif wrote it down here. Um, and keeps pointing to it. He's pointed to it about twenty five times. I just keep going right, steamrolling right over it. All right, so we, I want, we, we have to wrap soon. But I do want to talk a little bit about. I want to talk about the music. We talked about the movie a lot, and that this is obviously a film about a musician and very much about the live music. music. Yeah. That's the thing I love about it. Right? I've heard the records. You've heard the records. What I really fell in love with was Amy just kind of walking out, chatting to her friends in a cab, messing around, stands up, pick up a guitar, starts to sing. You're like, wow. Yeah. It's just the rawness of it. The, yeah. the kind of, if there's one word that kind of, it's a film about love. That's the word I would use that kind of, it's what it's all about in one way or another. But the kind of, the thing about the texture of it is quite raw. Yeah. And the rawer the better for me with her because like, it's just her voice and her guitar and maybe right. one other guy playing. And it's just like, she blows you away. Even if you don't like her stuff, yeah. you will hear someone you cannot it's undeniable. Help but be impressed by her. It's undeniable. I mean, her talent is undeniable, and there's plenty in the plenty of her music in the film that I w- I would never have been a fan of. There's a lot of stuff that's very way less poppy than what most people know of, of her music, but it's still just beautiful, achingly beautiful music. But uh, but what I was actually what I want to ask about is that you've got this score. Who did the score? Um, a guy called Antonio Pinto. Yeah, the score is. For, so it's kind of you're kind of in like a, a touchy space. It seems like you've got this film about this incredible musician, this incredible singer, and then you've got to try to 
add to her story with music. So it seems like very, that would be a very very dangerous. Yeah, difficult position. But it is really a subtle and perfect like perfectly matched score. Like how did you get there? How how closely did you work with with the composer? So Antonio um is is it's a big issue. I thought about it a lot. I you know, do you put music on a film about a musician? But I always I, I for me I treat them as movies and movies have scores and scores help tell the story particularly when you've got just audio a lot of the time literally all you've got is audio to play with so you have to kind of use sound design and use music now Antonio I worked with previously on this other film called Senna which you have to watch yes. not in the car yeah no <coughs> Although, particularly because of the but, subject but, matter but do not watch this very appropriate place no, to watch I'm the film you, Senna you don't want to if watch you're this a passenger in the car. you may get carried away yeah um, just start going for it well, don't mess with Senna so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So Antonio is an amazing composer. He's from São Paulo. He um, he did City of God. He did Central Station. He worked with Michael Mann on you know films, um, Collateral, and various stuff. So he's like a composer. He's a big yeah. composer, and I worked with him on a few films. He did Senna. He kind of chased me down. He's a Brazilian, and he was like, "I love this guy. I want to do the music." I'm like, "I can't afford you." And he was in Brazil. I was in London. And he's like, "Let me try. Let me try." I was like, "Fine, write some music." That's awesome. And then I'll see if I can cut with it. So I was in London. He didn't even watch any of the film. Just from his memory of Senna he wrote this theme which is the main theme of Senna it's a beautiful piece of music so that you're hired now on that film I was going backwards and forwards to Brazil quite a lot so I got to spend time with him on, on, on Amy he, I kind of just asked him without thinking you know, I kept thinking should I get someone that she's worked with before should I get a producer but in a way that's all too close to home I wanted something that's slightly separate from her music so you don't get confused by it um, so he was I never even got to meet him on this one you know, he was oh, in really? Brazil I was in London he wrote this theme this beautiful piano theme um, which kind of develops and it's kind of the emotional kind of underlying score it's quite subtle but it's there in the background yeah. and um it just works i'm glad i'm glad you liked it I'm yeah. glad no no i mean you're the first pen- person to mention the really score. Yeah. oh i think it's i think it's critical i actually you know towards the towards the end of the film i mean there's there's a, just a moment where i i think it is very subtle throughout the throughout the movie there's a point where it's not subtle at all and it it could have been it's the point where it could have ruined the film, you know. Well, what's and interesting it, though, it you need to see it theatrically. Yeah. Well, and, no, I'd li- I would you need like to see it and hear would, it properly and see. Hopefully believe me, I would, I would, I would like to see it because I don't know how it sounds if you're listening to it on your. Computer. It sounded quite good. It sounded quite well. I, actually, because you need to hear her at this music. point. I was listening to it. I was listening to it in pretty high quality earbuds. So, so it was. You had your iPad and yeah. headphones on yeah. while you're driving down. No, the no, 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 no. This was after I had gotten out of the car and went into the office. So I'm going to ask a really I'm going to ask a really dumb sort of parting question. What's next for you? <laughs> no, but what do you what do you do after this? I mean, something, obviously there's something completely be... different. I'm doing a drama. I'm really? placed on a drama right now. So really, yeah. Something Can you totally tell me different. anything about it? Yeah, it's a love story. Okay. Yeah, it's set in a Caucasus region. It's an old book called Ali and Nino, and um, it's a Christian girl, Muslim boy, set kind of where Europe meets Asia, Russia meets Persia. It's kind of book set 100 years ago and it's, it's not, like i said something completely different sounds, in the background it's romantic oil. it's oil where there is oil there is war oh, but also love we hope you, you can love feel free to feel free to use that on the poster i will, I will the bit bit oh, but, yeah. but also love i think that'll be that's it that's all <laughs> you need huge what else uh, is there no yeah exactly well listen asif thank you uh for coming and doing this i really appreciate it this has been actually a super interesting conversation i i th- there were a lot of questions i had when watching this film and you've answered Many, not all of them, uh, and I do. I just have to say, if you, if you, whether or not you you like Amy Winehouse, uh, whether or not you think you'll be interested in this, this film is tremendous. I highly recommend it. It was exceeded my expectations, and also uh, uh, bring. I would bring at least some some tissue with you because it has it is it is a heartbreaking story. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for doing this. Really, thanks, appreciate man. It. That was good fun. Thank you.
Well, that's our podcast for this week. I'll be back next week, of course. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. And I want you to be with your family. I want you to hold your family close. I want you to tell your family that you love them. We'll be right back.